That's a good reminder from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, as we start a new year. We always uh, look at the new year with hope and anticipation, and we know that there's going to be pleasant things and unpleasant things, but in all of it, God who began a good work in us is going to complete that work, and nothing will prevent him from doing so. And that's, uh, that's encouraging to know. We are in the little book of Jude, right back there before the last book of the Bible, Revelation. We did 1st, uh, 2nd, and 3rd John and some of the smaller books just before the Christmas season. But poor little Jude got left out. And I think that happens a lot to this little book. It, um, it just takes up one page in my Bible. Now the print is large in my Bible, which I like. But um, maybe it takes up only half a page in yours if the print is small. But the message that Jude has to share with us is a foundational message. It's a critical message. It's a message that we desperately need to hear in the day in which we live. Let me just, it's not terribly long. I'm just going to read the book. Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the great judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them! For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily into the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They're clouds without water, carried about by the winds. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. 
raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that they would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jude, or Judas, it's the same name, uh, was a common name in the ancient world there in, in that day identifies himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. The word bondservant literally is a slave. He considers himself to be a slave of Jesus Christ. That's the attitude that Paul puts forward. In the same attitude that James talks about for the believer, that we are to consider ourselves as slaves, bond servants of our Lord and our Savior. Now that has kind of a bad connotation in our world, doesn't it? Remember what Jesus said in uh, Matthew chapter 11? He talks about taking his yoke upon us and learning from him. He says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The yoke was that piece of wood that would link two animals together, two oxen or donkeys or whatever the, the uh, person was wanting to put together and hitch up to pull a team. And the yoke made it possible for both to pull together. And the yoke was something that was fitted specifically for that particular animal. Jesus calls us to a relationship with him which is multifaceted. We call, we call him our Savior because he is. He has redeemed us through his blood out of the world of, of sin and destruction and judgment and misery. He has redeemed us out of that. He has saved us out 
from that penalty of eternal fire. He is also our Lord. He's the one now who is the master of our lives, not we ourselves. Sin will no longer have mastery over us, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, because of Jesus Christ. He is our master. He is our Lord. He is the one who controls and governs us. And we are yoked together with him in this life so that as we go through this life, he goes through it with us. His yoke is easy to bear. His burden is light because he takes the bulk of the load. When he does allow us to, to struggle a little bit under the strain of, of temptation and pressure and tension, it's for the purpose of helping us to grow stronger in him. We're his bond servants. And it's not a a debasing kind of a service. It's not a dehumanizing kind of a service. In fact, it is in the service of Jesus Christ that we find our greatest fulfillment, that we find our greatest joy, that we find true purpose and meaning in life. He is a bondservant of Jesus. The name Jesus is, comes from the Hebrew word yasha, which means to save. It's the very name that the angel Gabriel told, Moses, or told uh, Joseph. You will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. It's a little play on words. He's also called the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament that he would come and he would be God's chosen deliverer the Messiah. And then James says something, or Jude says something else here. He refers to his brother James. He says, and brother of James. Who is this particular James? Well, this particular James is the writer of the New Testament letter, James. He is the one who is the leader of the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 when the great Jerusalem council was held to settle the question about the keeping of ceremonial law. Was that necessary for salvation? And, and no, it was not. And they, they made that declaration very clear. This is the same James who is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, which means Jude is also the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the, the brothers of Jesus, uh, they were the children of Mary and Joseph after Jesus was born. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54, tells us this. It says, when he had come into his own country, in other words, he'd been away, he's coming back up to uh, the area of Nazareth now. He taught them in their synagogue, and they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simeon, and Judas, or Jude. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Everybody in Nazareth was offended because Jesus came and he taught with authority and he taught with power and he did miracles and 
he proclaimed the word of God, and they're all looking around saying, hey, we knew this kid when he was growing up. And all his brothers and sisters are with us. Who does he think he is? A prophet is not without honor except <laughs> in his own country. And Jesus knew that well. But there were at least six in addition to Jesus. Jesus, of course, being born of the virgin, without human conception, uh, the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and so the, the child that she bore is indeed the Son of God. But after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph enjoyed normal human life. And they took God seriously when he said, be fruitful and multiply, four boys and at least two girls. Nice-sized family. They were basically unbelievers during the public ministry of Jesus. You remember on another occasion, they came to sort of take charge of him because they thought he was sort of out of his mind and they were going to take him home and let him rest and, and kind of get himself put back together. They didn't believe. But after his death and resurrection, after the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we don't know exactly where it was that James and Jude, and hopefully we don't know, the Scripture don't say, but hopefully the rest of the family came to realize that, hey, Jesus, whom we grew up with, really was the Messiah the Son of God. James and Jude came to that point. And Jude here just, he doesn't really want to claim that directly, so he kind of goes about it the, through the back door. He's the brother of James. Everybody would have known who he was talking about there with James. And he's writing, this is called one of the general letters or general epistles. He's writing to all those who are called and sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ. The word call there is the word kletos, and it means to be invited or to be welcomed, to be called. Maybe this past holiday season, you got some invitations to maybe a Christmas party or a New Year's party or something, and you opened up the invitation, and it said, you know, so-and-so invites you at such-and-such -such a time for whatever, this, this party. Well, you were called to attend. God has called you and me to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the call has gone out to all the world. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. That's the first part of the take my yoke upon you and learn of me from Matthew chapter 11. That's a verse we memorized last year. You're a week ahead on this year's verse. Jesus has called us to a personal relationship with himself. But that's not just that. He's writing to those who are sanctified. Now, some of your translations may say those who are beloved by God. There's a little bit of a textual question here. Some of the ancient Greek manuscripts have the word um, sanctified. Others have the word beloved. I'm not sure I'm smart enough to figure out which one it is, so I'm going to take them both because both are true. As we look at the rest of Scripture, 
we see that we are called and we are sanctified by God. The idea of sanctification is that you are set apart from the ordinary and the mundane for special purpose. We have been sanctified by Jesus Christ. We're called by him and we are set apart by him. We are not of this world anymore. And the scripture clearly teaches that we as the called and sanctified ones are the beloved of God. God the Father, well, John 3.16 says it, doesn't it, that God so loved the world. God has demonstrated his love by calling us, by setting us apart, and we are beloved by him. He loves his children. So whether your translation has sanctified or whether your translation has beloved by the Father, I'm happy either way because both things are true. And that may be why we have manuscripts, copies, where the, both words are included. And he goes on to say this. He says that not only are you called, not only are you sanctified or beloved, but you are preserved in Jesus Christ. Your salvation depends upon Jesus Christ. You and I cannot earn our salvation. We don't deserve it. It comes to us as a free gift of God's grace. We receive it by faith. That's the only work that we do. Jesus was asked the question, what works should we do to work the work of God? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God that you believe on the one he sent. So when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, we receive that gift of salvation, and it is a complete gift. It begins in our lives the moment we receive him by faith, and God works that out in our lives every day and every day. He who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ Jesus, and in him he keeps us secure. He preserves those whom he saves. It's God's work from beginning to end. He goes on in verse 3, he talks a little bit about what his initial purpose in writing was. And you know, I think this is kind of an indication of the activity of the Spirit of God in inspiring those who wrote Scripture for us. Jude wanted to write about the common salvation that all Christians share. That refers to a, a body of doctrine. All Christians believe that God is the creator of the universe. All Christians believe that Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin, who has both a divine nature and a human nature in one person. All Christians believe that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, died on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day and that he ascended later on back into heaven and he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. Those are things that are basic throughout Orthodox Christianity genuine Christianity. 
And Jude was thinking, you know what? I'm going to write, and I'm just going to reinforce the foundation again. I'm just going to make sure that everybody is square on the foundation. I'm going to write to them about that common salvation that we enjoy. But the Spirit of God intervened. And in the middle of verse 3, he says, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. His original intention was to strengthen the foundation. But as he began to put his pen to the papyrus there, he began to realize that, hey, there's something that's more critical for the moment and that is to encourage these believers to stand up in the face of an attack against the truth. Is that a message you and I need to hear today? Are there those that are attacking the truth of God's Word? Absolutely. This, though it is a small book, gives us tremendous insight into the spiritual struggles that you and I are facing every single day of our lives. He says, I found it necessary to exhort to you, or to write to you, to exhort you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. That body of doctrine that I outlined a few moments ago has not changed in thousands of years. It's been presented to us by God. It has been written in His Word. God has preserved His Word. It has been translated in languages all around the world. Christians all around the world believe those points of doctrine that I outlined for you. That is the foundation. It was delivered once for all for the saints. It's not going to be changed. What God has said is not going to be rescinded. It's not going to be changed by God. He said it once. That was sufficient. It's us now, our responsibility to receive what God has revealed. Not to change it. Not to tweak it or whatever other little adjective you might want to put on there. It's not for us to change. It's for us to conform to. And that's what Jude is writing about. Now, you understand that Satan, the great adversary of God, the great deceiver, the father of lies, is not interested in the truth. I've often said that Satan has two plans for humanity. One is to keep them in spiritual darkness so that they never come to the knowledge of the truth. And the other is, when plan A fails, to mess up Christians' lives in such a way that their lives and testimony become completely ineffective. And one of the ways that he does that is through false doctrine. We're going to have a little description here. Verse 4 introduces them to us. It says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed. There is the threat of false teachers. They've crept in. I've had to deal with false teachers on numerous occasions. 
And they never walk in the door with a sign that says, I'm a false teacher. They come in with a smile on. They come in with a handshake. They come in saying, praise the Lord. They come in saying, good to see you, brother. They come in looking like the real thing. And it takes a great deal of discernment and time sometimes to figure out who's a believer and who's one of these certain men. But it's not a new phenomenon. Notice in verse 4 it says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. This never takes God by surprise. In fact, you can look through the Old Testament and you find lots of instances where there were false teachers in Israel. One of the reasons that God sent them into captivity was because of the proliferation of false prophets. They got up and said, oh, let's worship God this way. Let's worship God that way. Let's do something different. In Deuteronomy, God gives to Moses a, a test. He says, you know, if, if a prophet comes and he says something and it doesn't come to pass, that's a false prophet. But if a prophet comes and he says something and it does come to pass, and then he says, let's go do this, don't listen to him. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 18. That was Roger's paraphrase, okay? You read the real thing in Deuteronomy 18. But don't listen to him, even if the thing comes to pass that he says, because Satan works miracles from time to time. He can do amazing things, things that you and I can't do. He's like a magician. He can wow us and put on a show and deceive us and make us think that we're seeing something that we're not or that we're hearing something that we're not. We can be led astray. Let's look at the description of these, the character of these. And in verse 4, we see some of that character. First of all, that they are deceitful. Secondly, that they have already been marked out for condemnation. God's not fooled, and their number is up. They are already condemned. That they are ungodly men. They are individuals who are not founded upon the truth. They are not founded upon righteousness. They are deceivers. They are ungodly. Whatever is true, right, just, noble, pure, all those things, whatever God is, they are, are not that. They are opposed to that. Verse 8 continues the description. It says, these dreamers, they're dreamers. They have an imagination. You're impressed with a vision, they'll have a vision. You want a word from, a new fresh word from God, they'll give you a word from God. They'll open their mouth and say, oh, this is what God says. They're, they're dreamers. They just have all kinds of crazy ideas in their heads. And they will put those ideas out there for you. It goes on in verse 8 that they defile the flesh. Wherever false doctrine exists, there is also immorality. You can bank on it. 
wherever false doctrine exists, some perversion of the gospel, some twisting of the word of God, eventually, behind the scenes, at some point, that false doctrine will manifest itself in sexual immorality. Whether it's adultery, and you have some TV guru that, you know, is saying one thing and on the TV screen and living another kind of a life behind the set. Or it'll be fornication, or it'll be homosexuality, or it'll be some kind of sexual immorality. False doctrine and sexual immorality go hand in hand. He goes on, and he says that they reject authority. They don't want anybody telling them what to do. They don't want a board of directors. They don't want God to tell them what to do. They don't want the Bible to tell them what to do. They just want to do their own thing. They are autonomous. They will not submit to anybody. And at the same time, they will cry to God for, for their authority. They'll put on that show but they're not submitting to God. They're submitting only to themselves and their own authority. They reject everything else. And they speak evil of dignitaries. They, they put down those that might be speaking the truth. They speak against them. They make false accusations about them. They even speak ignorantly of God. That's what these certain men are like in their character. And then we have some illustrations of that. Well, let's back up here to verse 5. Here's an illustration. So we've described these men. Jude has described them for us. Now he's going to illustrate what they're like. He says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. That's an important phrase. You ought to underline it. Every Israelite came out of Egypt, didn't they? They all came out. Did all of them in their heart of hearts believe that God was delivering them? No. Which is absolutely amazing because he appeared to them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and led them around. It was absolutely amazing because he did miracles through Moses that the Egyptian magicians could not duplicate. It's amazing that they wouldn't believe because he made a distinction between Israel and the rest of Egypt. And while the rest of Egypt was suffering in misery and darkness, there in the land of Goshen, the nation of Israel was enjoying light. And yet, the majority of those Israelites who experienced God's physical deliverance of them from Egypt, going out through the Red Sea, there it is on both sides, rolling around but not coming down, and the ground is dry beneath their feet. They get up on the other shore, and God closes the sea, and Pharaoh's army is all destroyed, that same group of people who experienced all of those things turned their back on God. 
they did not believe, though they experienced the blessings of God. You know what? There's a lot of people in the world today who experience the blessings of God, and they want to experience the blessings of God. They want his benefits. They just don't want him. They just don't want him. They're like the nation of Israel, called to have a special relationship, but they refuse to have it. They refuse to obey. They refuse to submit. Here's another illustration. Verse 6. The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. I don't know all the details. The scripture doesn't give us a lot of details, things that we do know we can put together from various passages. But at some point after the seventh day, the day of rest, after God on the sixth day pronounced all of creation very good, at some point from day eight until whenever it happened, Satan led a rebellion. He first rebelled in his own heart, and then secondly, he was able to subtly get some followers among the angelic host. Now, you would think, wouldn't you, that those who ministered in the very immediate presence of Almighty God would not be fooled. But how persuasive must Satan's arguments have been? Scripture says in Revelation that up to a third of the angelic host, it's a fixed number. Angels don't reproduce as people do. Their, their number is fixed. God made so many of them, and that's how many there are. And about a third of that number seems to have followed Satan in his rebellion. And in a variety of ways, some in their rebellion got sent immediately to the pit, and that's it for them. Not, they, they don't have any influence in this world whatsoever. I don't know what that kind of rebellion was, but that's a pretty direct and immediate and powerful penalty. Satan, the instigator of the whole thing, is still walking about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, that's not because God's weak and can't get him in prison. That's not it at all. But for God's purposes, he is allowing Satan to continue to function in this world and to, to separate out humankind, those who will follow him and those who will not. Some angels, apparently, in Genesis chapter 6, cohabited with women. Remember, wherever there's false doctrine, there's also sexual immorality. It's amazing. It's amazing. And yet, we don't learn from the examples. Those who did not keep their own abode, but went after strange flesh, Genesis chapter 6, are set forth in as, exam as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Here's another example. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them. In a similar manner to these, in other words, to these fallen angels, have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. And are, uh, excuse me, have uh, 
Yeah, going after strange flesh as well. And they have been set forth in as, an, as an example. When the fire and brimstone rained down from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed those cities, what is God saying? God is saying not only to those cities and those people, this is what your rebellion deserves. He's saying the same thing to everybody else as an example. This is what rebellion against God will receive. The fiery judgment of Almighty God. Lots of examples. But do these certain men, these dreamers, these ungodly, these ones who want to lead people astray, do they learn from history? No, they don't. They think they're bold and they think they're going to be different and they think they're going to get away with it and that their rebellion's going to succeed and it's not going to happen. Verse 9 is interesting. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, they'll see something on TV or streaming or whatever, and they'll hear some guy saying about, oh, you gotta, you got to defeat the devil, you got to say this or say that or stomp him under your foot or whatever. You know, we've got the power of God, we can bash in there. And Michael did not take that approach. Now, who is Michael? Well, he is the archangel. He is the one who is the greatest of all the angelic creation. That's what the word arche means. It means first, foremost, preeminent. You can only have one. He's the archangel. Michael has plenty of power. <laughs> you know, he's got plenty of wisdom, plenty of strength. He's an angel. And yet, when Michael, the archangel, was disputing with Satan about what's going to happen with the body of Moses. You remember that story back there in, at the end of Deuteronomy where Moses goes up on the mountain. It says that you know, he got to see everything, and then God killed him. God took his life. And so Moses' spirit went to be with God, and, and there was Moses' body lying on the ground. And apparently, Satan who wanted desperately to, who was an opponent of Moses the whole time that Moses was leading God's people, he must have wanted to do something to that body. And Michael was there to, I guess, bury it or, you know, give it some honor. And a dispute arose, and Michael does not take matters into his own hands. He says, the Lord rebuke you. The archangel the mightiest angel in all creation in dealing with Satan says, God, you intervene. You take care of it. I think, beloved, that's instructive to you and me. Don't try to command Satan. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. Yes, you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You're indwelt with the Spirit and all those things. All that is true. But if you ever find yourself in a situation where you believe that you're dealing with something that's really, really evil, you don't, don't try to deal with it yourself. Intervene with God and say, God, you take care of this. Get on your knees, literally, if you can. Yeah, literally, if you can. Get on your knees and pray and ask God to intervene in that situation. Follow the example of Michael. 
That's said because of verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they do know, naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. How many times have you flipped on the radio or the television or whatever, and you've seen some charlatan out there trying to teach you about spiritual warfare, and you've got to pray the demons out of this and out of that and all this crazy stuff? It's false teachers. They're creeping in. They're trying to get you distracted. They're trying to get you derailed. They're trying to destroy your testimony. They're trying to, to minimize your dependence upon the Word of God. They're offering something that looks exciting, that looks powerful, that looks intriguing, that gives you an offer of power. You know, wouldn't you like to have power to do those things? And it's all fake. It's all false. They are deceivers. The things that they do know naturally, like a brute beast, these things they corrupt. What, do, what does men know naturally? Well, we know that God exists. Romans chapter 1 makes it very, very clear. We know that God exists. He's built it into our very soul. Hebrew, or, um, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. But what do we do with that basic knowledge? Well, Romans 1 tells us. They exchange the glory of God for the glory of beasts and of birds and of man and of creeping things. They did not honor God as God. They have that instinctive knowledge that God exists but even that instinct is turned aside. And rather than let that be something that, that draws us to the truth, they substitute something else. Idols, whatever it might be. Boy, that happens all the time in our world. That happens all the time. He pronounces some woes here in verse 11. Woe to them. That, that word woe we don't use very often, but it's a word of judgment. It's a word of agony. It's a word of disaster. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. What was the way of Cain? You remember Cain back there in Genesis? He brought an offering on his own decision. He and Abel both brought offerings. They knew that God wanted an offering, and Abel brought an offering from the flock. It was a blood offering. Cain brought an offering from what his own works had produced, and I'm sure it was beautiful the best melons, the best whatever it was that he, and he brought it and he placed it there and God says, it says that God had regard for Abel's offering but had no regard for Cain's offering. There's a lot of people that think, oh, I can worship God anywhere. I can worship God on the golf course. Yes, indeed. I can worship God out in nature. I can worship God whenever and wherever I want to. I don't need the church. I don't need the discipline of coming together to worship at a certain time and in a certain place. I don't know. I can worship God anywhere. Yes, you can worship God anywhere. But if you refuse to associate with God's people, you will not worship God anywhere. I guarantee it. You may go through the pattern of worship. You may think you're doing something, but it's the way of Cain. It's not acceptable to God. It doesn't gain his approval his favor. There's another group here. 
They've run greedily in the error of Balaam. What did Balaam do? Well, you can read about it in Numbers 22. Balaam was encouraged to come by a king named Balak to pronounce a curse on God's people. And Balak said, you know what? I got deep pockets. You come, Balaam, and I'll make it worth your time. Well, at first, Balaam said no. He wasn't going to go. And they came back a second time, and they said, now, come on. You know, we'll, we'll throw in a little more money. This is Roger's paraphrase. We'll throw in a little more here for you. you. You just come. Don't let anything delay you. You come. So Balaam goes. Even though God had told him, do not go. What was the God that Balaam was really worshiping? Money. Money. And when the call of money became stronger and more powerful in his heart than the word of Almighty God, he went to his own destruction. Does that happen to people these days? Do people in, in our society get called by something other than God and whatever it is that God has told them, they can willingly set that aside and say, well, you know, I'll just, I'll just go and do this and it'll be great and it'll be wonderful. And it ends up being a disaster. There was one more. They perished in the rebellion of Korah. What was Korah's problem? Well, you can read about that also in the book of Exodus. Korah and some of his fellow priests got a little jealous of Moses. Moses was God's chosen instrument. And yes, Moses was unique, not because of Moses himself, but because God chose him. God was what made Moses unique. God chose him as his vessel, as his leader, and Korah got jealous. And he says, hey, we're no different than you. You're no different from us. We're just as holy as you are. And, and you know, God's going to speak through us too. And, and he led a rebellion. Jealousy. The failure to distinguish between that which is holy and that which is common. God did not call Korah to lead God's people. God called Moses, not because of Moses being special or anything like that, but because God chose to use Moses. The, the source of Moses' holiness and uniqueness and calling was not in Moses, it was in God. And Korah didn't want to recognize that. He wanted to think that everybody's just equal, everybody's the same, doesn't matter. There's no distinctions between what God says is holy and what God says is common. Do we see that in our world today? Yeah, we sure do. We sure do. All these things creep in, beloved, because Satan is a great deceiver and because those who follow him become deceivers as well. There's a lot more that we could talk about here, and I realize that time is getting away from us. Let me go over here to verse 20. How are we going to handle all this? How are we going to know truth from error? Right here. But you, beloved, he calls them beloved. They are believers. 
in Jude's mind. He's writing to fellow Christians. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. I hope, beloved, that you do not look upon Sunday school and the worship service and the Wednesday night Bible study as sufficient for your spiritual growth. They are not. It's a good start. Helps to lay a good foundation. They're vitally important. But you have a responsibility to feed yourself on the Word of God. I'm delighted to be able to preach and teach, and I thank God for the privilege, and I pray that I can do it faithfully and accurately, that, that He's going to be pleased with the things that I share. But I can't spoon-feed you. You have to take this Word and, and take some responsibility and get into the Word and build yourself you know, the, the physical trainer can get a fellow or a gal who wants to experience some physical training, and they can outline all the exercises, and they can outline the diet, and they can outline all the habits that are necessary for physical health and strength, but it's not until that person themselves gets on the weight machine or gets on the elliptical trainer or whatever it is, it's not until that person does the work themselves that change begins to happen. I can exhort you and encourage you and try to help you and counsel you and do all those things, but it's not until you and I take these things for ourselves and let them sink deeply into our own hearts and minds and transform us that we will begin to live the kind of life that pleases God, that we will begin to be able to discern truth from error. When the truth fills us, we'll spot error just like that. But if the truth is not filling our hearts, we're going to be drawn away and deceived. He says, praying in the Holy Spirit are you a prayer warrior? Do you pray about everything? When you get awake in the morning, is one of the first things, first thoughts in your conscious mind, is it to thank God for the new day He's given you? Do you start your day with prayer? I mean, before you even get out of bed, before you even reach up on the headboard and turn the light on. The alarm has gone off, your, your body is waking up, and the first thought in your mind is, thank you, God, for another day. That's, that's what I mean about prayer. It, it's important to set time aside, and that's good. We need to do that, specific time. But just in every aspect of life, to bring it consciously before God and say, God, I need your wisdom for this. Before you pick up the phone, I have no idea who's on the other end. Well, I guess sometimes we do now with call waiting, don't, or caller ID. But before you answer it, God, I don't know what's gonna, what this conversation is about. Give me your wisdom. 
Help me to be able to, to handle it well. That's what we need to be doing. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Don't let your love for God diminish. Don't let your love of God diminish. And if it begins to wane, it's because we're not in the book. It's because we're not praying. It's because we're not fellowshipping with other believers. It's because we're not availing ourselves of the privileges that we have as believers in Jesus Christ to remain strong and faithful. I've said it many times, brethren and sisters, we need each other. We need each other. We need to be here. We need to be encouraging. We need to be praying together. We need each other. That's why God calls it a body. A body of believers. He goes on and he says, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Do you look for the mercies of God in your everyday existence? In Bible school we have what's called a God sighting. And usually it's one of those things, well, I saw birds and I saw rabbits, and I, you know, and, and all that's legitimate. I mean, to see the creation that God has made is, is a God sighting. This stuff didn't just come around by accident. And that's great for little kids because they can identify with those things. They can see it, they can touch it, they can feel it, they can smell it. And, and it reminds them that God is the creator, that God is the provider, and so forth. But as we grow in our walk with Christ, there ought to be other things that we see in our daily lives that remind us of the mercy of God at work in us. Do you see those things? Look for them. They're there all the time. And all of those things will be effective in helping to keep us focused on the Lord, focused on the truth, and therefore we will know how to live in this world. He closes by reminding us who's in charge, who we can trust. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling. <laughs> I am so glad. Luann and I had a conversation here not too long ago about some of our past experiences, and we just rejoiced that God kept us from stumbling. What a joy. He's able to do that. And to present you, circle this word, faultless faultless before the presence of His glory. When you and I stand before God the Father, Jesus is going to present us faultless because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, because we have been clothed in His righteousness. All that has passed is passed, is forgiven, is cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And we can stand in his presence faultless. Not because we were in our lifetime. Not because of any goodness on our part or anything that we've done. But because he has made us faultless. It's God's work. Start to finish. And then he ends with a blessing. To God our Savior 
who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forever. Beloved, I would, we didn't look at all of it, but I would encourage you, spend a little time in this little book of Jude and look at it from the perspective of living in this life and see that we can face the challenges of deception, we can face the challenges of temptation before us because God is our Savior. He is our refuge and strength. He is our very present help in trouble. He is the one who has promised that he will complete that good work that he started in us. We are complete in Christ, and one day we will experience that completeness when we stand before him. That's something to be thankful for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we didn't get everything said that could have been said, but Father, I pray that your word and the things that you've put on my heart to share will be used by your spirit to encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we live in a dangerous world. It is a world that is arrayed against you, and it is filled with deception. It is filled with lies. It is filled with pitfalls and temptations. Oh, Father, we are sheep among wolves. But we have a shepherd. We have a shepherd who laid down his life for us and who will not allow one of his lambs to perish. Thank you, Father. May we be faithful in following him all the days of our lives. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil because yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.